0: working day has been transformed in many parts of the world. Our relationship with rail travel and the future of the urban commuter is undergoing a dramatic shift. My guest today is a man who's shaping the daily commuter experience and driving the digitization of travel across our cities. Michael Pater is CEO of Siemens Mobility and he spoke to me from Berlin to offer his insight on how our public transport networks are making moves forward. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich and this is The Chiefs. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. I wanted to maybe start with a big question for our listeners who might be sitting in North America, or they're in Europe, or they're in a major Asian city. When you look at the urban environment today and people heading out their front doors, uh, hopefully going to an office, going to work, going to the airport, what are the major issues confronting the urban commuter today?
1: Well I think it's uh, very much around that everybody leaves the office or whatever at the same time and and traffic jams or the trains are packed for one hour a day but we're really not using our system very efficiently and combining that with the fact that actually we make little to no use of information available when planning our trips or even planning the transportation systems Um, we We run the trains as if we didn't know, and and many times we don't know what the usage will be. Uh, All of that uh, leads to quite an inefficient system and a loss of time. And I I know very few people who, who like traffic, who have a happy experience when they commuting either in the car or also in the train.
0: So, of course, there are many things that go beyond what Siemens Mobility can deal with because, of course, you can't really impact. You might be able to advise on what a, a new working day looks like, and, and maybe we could argue that, that there is a new type of working day in many parts of the world. But maybe let's go back to that uh, commuter uh, looking out across the city, uh, across the street. When people think about what you do, uh, what Siemens Mobility has to to do and deliver, they probably are thinking about the threshold of a train where they look down and they see uh, on the the no-slip grate they see the Siemens uh, brand name there. But uh, if you look beyond, where else are you touching the life of a commuter every day?
1: Well, first of all, I think Siemens is uh, actually typical for many other companies. We are giving our employees much more liberty now to plan their daily lives and their work lives, but also their vacation lives. Uh, Actually, we also allow to work from vacation locations so actually there's a lot more flexibility and it's a huge opportunity to to use the system differently but uh, coming to your question um, Siemens is in basically all areas of your trip uh, involved you mentioned the train itself of course uh, we have very strong infrastructure meaning to actually schedule trains, to make trains driverless. Uh, in many, many cities, we, we have done that in all c- uh, continents. We are very strong in calculating timetables an automatic way to avoid that uh, trains actually use the same bottleneck at the same time so that they basically rush through it at the maximum speed one after another. But we also very much into what we call uh, SAP for rail, into software for operators and passengers. So um for instance we're implementing uh, mobility as a service platforms in the whole country of Spain including 27 cities including microservices like these little scooters you can rent taxis and everything so that you actually have an end to end experience and you have, you book one ticket and And you have one price and you have, of course, optionalities of using maybe the most uh, carbon uh, efficient mode of transportation or the quickest one or just uh, in one particular time, whatever one is possible at that time. So all of that is part of our portfolio and the, the software portion then, of course, extends also into operator software to predict usage of trains. Uh, We know that when it's raining in New York City that people will rush into the metros in the next hour because they they stop shopping or they stop whatever they're doing. So so we can predict these events and we can uh, tell operators when to schedule more trains, longer trains and, and all of these type of things.
0: Let's maybe look at the Spanish example. Uh, and, and of course, this has been quite high profile. It's received a, a lot of attention. I'm interviewing you from Zurich today. There's a, a system in Switzerland that the, the SBB operates, a platform which I believe is quite similar. That, of course, you swipe in, getting onto a, a train. And then, of course, along the way, you might step onto a bus and then even a boat. And then you swipe out. And of course, there is the most uh, efficient calculation, or one hopes it's an efficient calculation, that comes out, which gives gives you an end price. Now that is, you have to bring together quite a coalition of partners to make that happen. I I would imagine it would be the same uh, situation in Spain as, as well, because I've noticed oftentimes people come to Switzerland, let's say from Japan, very, you know, very efficient nation when it comes to to transport and travel. And they've been sort of amazed at this. That This is also also like something of wonder. As much as we get excited about people getting on a Shinkansen, they were sort of amazed that you could do this because in Japan you have to buy multiple tickets. It's still quite complicated. But do do you almost need a, a certain level of not just infrastructure, but I would say sort of umbrella governance to implement something like this, Michael?
1: There are basically two different challenges here. The one is on the technology side and that's one we we are tackling with what we call accelerator to build open interfaces, data protocols that actually even allow you to exchange data very easily so that as a passenger you have have even the possibility to have a one-trip experience because you can interfere with all these different types of transportation. Let's take the UK for an example, there you um, have over 20 operators in mainline services and from a passenger view, it should be feeling and looking like one system if you really want to get people onto the onto the train. But then, of course, there's your regulatory side that you rightfully mentioned. That, and that is one of the biggest hurdles to achieve these type of systems nowadays, that most transport operators define themselves as a company and they say, my sales channel is a lot of the worth of my company and who I am. So they insist on in, in them being the only ones selling their tickets. So actually cross-selling of tickets is something that not it doesn't happen everywhere automatically, even though you would think it's good if somebody else sells my... My ticket for this train also. So in an example like Spain, there's a lot of political activities behind it to get all the cities to agree to actually participate in this overall system. And you can, you can see, I think, that this is a, a very promising approach where you just basically set by government in the end, flat rate, same price for everyone, no matter where you go. That is, of course, creating a lot of appetite and showing that people like to use trains, but it's not a system where you have information later on to provide a good quality service, because if as an operator, you don't know who you sold the ticket for and for what train and what trip you actually sold it for. And as a passenger, you have no idea of knowing if the train you want to take is full or empty. Then, of course... There's no chance that at the end every train is used in a 90% occupation rate. Then then you'll have everybody taking the exact same train at the same daytime, going on a Friday afternoon to go skiing in Switzerland or something like that. So I think it's extremely important that we, when we create these solutions, actually take into account that we should make use of data and have uh, predictions of who wants to use what and actually provide a good service at the end of the day, also.
0: Indeed, and, and I don't want to only focus on, uh, of course, rail in this interview. We should we should discuss uh, other aspects as well. I want to go back because we got a little bit sidetracked on this topic. So on one side, Siemens Mobility, of course, is very involved in all aspects of inf- infrastructure, the digitization that goes around that, as you've said. Uh, but let's say if I'm getting on uh, my, my bicycle to cross Zurich, or if I'm getting uh, in my car to go through Dublin, uh, where else are you touching people as part of, uh, I would say, that, that daily commuter experience as a consumer?
1: Well, there's of course Siemens Overall. We are also involved in uh, charging infrastructure for private cars. Siemens Overall is uh, generally in, involved a lot in the automotive industry and we are in everything that is basically also cross different modes like uh, intermodal transportation, end-to-end uh, trips. But it's really then outside the trains for Siemens Mobility. It's mainly the software. And what we, of course, have also done is that we have looked at our technologies where else it can help to reduce CO2 emissions. So, for instance, the E-Trucks, a the dynamic charging infrastructure, how we call it. That's a system that we're promoting where you can tr- charge trucks, but that wouldn't be your daily <laughs> commute. But uh, the daily commute, maybe it is these these apps. You probably have an app on your telephone that is uh, is made by Siemens. We have uh, several hundred million downloads of these, uh, for instance, been Navigator apps or BVG apps or the one you mentioned, in Switzerland. So we built these apps actually where you can put your intermodal uh, trip together.
0: Yeah, which is. Uh a fascinating tool and and as one i hope that we start to see elsewhere or even that there's a global model because um, it works it works incredibly well uh- I maybe want to just focus for a moment because maybe we can end this. I do want to. You're speaking from Berlin, and of course, Monocle was there, covering you know Trans as many other journalists were, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, of course, what is one of the world's biggest jamborees when it comes to Rolling Stock and infrastructure. But before that, I was in Dakar, so really a sprawling city and and a city which is you know emerging on so many levels. But when it comes to big infrastructure and uh, of course issues that go with it, very nice highways that lead you out of the city, but very few traffic lights uh, in the city. You and I are having a luxury conversation right now about apps and we can swipe in and out and we can get on and off boats and hire scooters and do all kinds of things. And then we have a whole other part of this planet, which is very far behind. Uh, And is that a challenge for a player like Siemens when on one side, there is the, you know the sexy side of digitization, uh, the fact that it doesn't involve as many hands, all of those things. And then you have a world which is very analog and there is many things that need to be built still. And is that still an area of focus? And I, I was sort of scratching my head thinking, how can the two reconcile? because there's you know we sit in within a European or northern hemisphere context and talk about charging stations and what new Audi or Porsche someone's going to buy. I mean, And there's no sense of electric anything uh, when it comes to, to transport and mobility uh, when you're on the other side of, of the Mediterranean. And uh, is that a challenge and, and maybe, oh, not just a challenge, a danger that we're so focused in Europe moving one direction when there is a, you know, certainly another part of the world which is, is not moving in that direction at all at the moment?
1: Well, I think you're touching a very, very sensitive point there. I, I also feel we really have to focus... We don't want to fight global warming uh, on the global picture, not the local picture. And the question that we forget to ask many times is: Where do we save most CO2 for the euro? It's almost like it costs anything here if we if we save a ton, but if for the same money we can save 100 tons somewhere else, we we really should think about where to put the money. And I think that many times when I see how we approach certain challenges that we have here also in Europe or in the US or everywhere, all of a sudden our cars don't weigh two tons anymore, they weigh three tons, and but they have a battery and then this is the solution. And um, whilst many of us have a car, and, and we probably will keep driving car, and it's important that the automotive industry makes uh, car transportation clean, at the same time I think the focus got lost a little bit of saving actually energy. And if the car in the end actually uses more energy than now, then It might be clean, but overall it it will come at a cost for nature and for global warming. So for me, and that is a perfect bridge to Egypt, I mean, it's very important that the international community works together to provide solutions to the countries that you mentioned. In Egypt, for instance, and that that is unfortunately the long way you have to go when you want to go to rail transportation, at least. First of all, you need electricity. And that's a general development stage for many countries. First, you electrify, and then, then you have infrastructure, and then you industrialize. And then we see that now Siemens portfolio. You don't sell automation equipment. You used to sell the, the power plants first. Egypt did all of that. They electrified. They have modern power plants that are very efficient plants, and now they had the option to, either build a system. And I get this absurd question that, that people ask me: How can they afford a system for eight billion euros? And, and that's the value of the contract we have. But it's two thousand kilometers of rail. That actually, because in Egypt most people live along the Nile River and. the Coastlines—it reaches 90% of the population. And mind you, that uh, Egypt has around 100 million people, so we're talking 90 million people that otherwise would use cars. And if you just make the simple equation that a passenger mile traveled on a train uses 10% of the energy than on a car, no matter how many batteries you put in a car, it's still 90% inefficiency built into the system. And uh, the same is true actually for the resources you take out because the train runs 600,000 kilometers every year. The resources, the, the amount of metals of uh, everything is, is like 5 to 10 percent of a, of a car seat that uh, per passenger kilometer travel basically. So, so it's a much, much more efficient uh, system. So when a country decides to go this way, it is the cheapest way to provide transportation and uh, the people in Egypt. I think the uh, 75% is below 25 years. So these people will travel. I mean, these predictions that in 2050, we will travel three times the passenger kilometers that ha- that are being traveled today and, on, on the globe. I absolutely believe them. These people will travel at 25 years. They want to see the world and they want to see their families. And they have one option to buy a car, which is very expensive at the end of the day, not energy efficient or train. So I, I think what you said is spot on. I think we got to think globally how people want to move and, uh, and, and and what we can provide as a solution and not save for one euro, one tonne here when, when we could save 100 tonnes somewhere else for the euro.
0: And you raise another interesting point uh, as well, and maybe this is another topic which... Again, we, we forget about when, when we think about the dazzling bright lights that come from a, a backlit screen, whether it's an iPhone or whether it's made by Samsung or or somebody else. But again, this push to digitization and then, of course, the, the divide it creates and, and you know it was in the German language press and it was talking about the change in part of your world, which was more stations, but it was the, the move to getting away from coin-operated toilets um, and so that it was for credit cards and, and mostly for mobile phone use in a, in a rail network here Europe. And the point was that a lot of people who might need a toilet more often than anyone else are people who are over 65. Um, And that's just a fact of life. And part of what we're saying was like someone in all of this forgot about uh, aging society. So on one side, we can be excited about the amount of people under 25 in Egypt. We have to think about an aging society, of course, in many parts of of Europe and North America and and other corners of the world. And, And is there also a danger right now when we get excited about automation, digitization, that... Yeah, I mean, people have arthritis and actually your hands just don't work with a screen when your fingers are gnarled and you have to suddenly try to use your nail to make the screen work. Uh, And and so is there also a danger as well that we have to make sure that, you know, that we're also bringing people along amidst this digitization and then suddenly very simple things like toilets just don't work because everyone thinks everyone's got an iPhone?
1: Yeah, the one, just um, picking up your example of the toilets, I mean, I think there's a lot of thought being spent in Europe on making transportation um, barrier-free because people are able, and and Germany also is a special case because we have a very dense network. We don't have a capital like London or Paris. We have a lot of equally important cities. Not one of them is as big as London, but we have a lot of them in the Manchester size. And and so our network, our train network is, is truly a network and the efficiency comes from actually being able to change trains a lot. So you don't want to be uh, standing in front of a staircase 10 minutes before you go into the station so you're sure you make it out the train to to make your connection. So clear choice, barrier-free, single-deck trains, level entrance, and, and all of these things are being thought through and the toilets are actually getting bigger with every design. On the other hand, I think there's another point you actually mentioned that is also important. We should not use digitalization to basically mirror the complexity of today's systems in the digital world. We should really try to make it easier. It's not like you have a coin today and it's easy to find the right ticket in these machines, right? I mean, that's actually going back to your very first question. One of the nightmares to build a system like that one in Spain is that You have a a jungle of tariffs in every single city, and and it's a completely different concept from city to city. I mean, if you grew up in Munich, you have really no advantage in understanding the Berlin system versus somebody coming from South America, because they're so different in tariff structure with zones and whatnot. And and when we go to a digital system, really we should use the opportunity to think about what is really useful to get people into trains. It's quite simple a task for, for us as a society to make our cities livable. So I I think in the long run, yes, a telephone using a mobile phone will be a huge uh, advantage as a tool. I think without a telephone, you'll have a harder time to navigate our cities for everything we're doing. But I think there will be minimum services, uh, obviously, also to be provided for people who don't want to use a phone.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do think actually there there is room and, and maybe, of course, someone with your background m- might agree. It would be hard to argue with the Siemens board, uh, but maybe Siemens does need get to get back into the mobile phone business. Because I do think when we talk about aging society, there is the, the current lineup just does not work for a lot of people over a certain age. You can, you can talk about the complexity of the apps, but even just the pure interface of the screen and, and why, in the same way we see a lot of hotels going back to actually having you know, switches and levers uh, again and maybe not a digital shower. Uh, it sort of feels that there's there's maybe something for an aging society as well where there might be a niche and people will be willing to pay for it. And uh, yeah, so maybe that, that could be a side issue for uh, maybe for Siemens at some point.
1: We actually, when we develop these apps, I mean, we have cities where we developed a kids app for children that go to school, and it's basically a mobility app with only four or five push buttons. Like when you missed your station, uh, you press, uh, I want to go home. Or like you have it on some telephones, call mama or call papa. Uh, So we have these type of applications that make it very simple actually. And still, even though you're not maybe a digital native, actually provide a lot of service with just one or two buttons so that um, when when you're lost somewhere, you're not maybe uh, so good in orientation anymore. It actually can provide you microservices, where to walk and what train to take to get back to where you actually wanted to go, which is actually easier than, uh, again, getting out of the train, looking at our analog system, these old maps of connection points of of metro systems. That's, That's also not easy to navigate when you're at a certain age, and including myself. If I look at a map in London, I'm not sure I will exactly understand where to change trains. It could be easier with uh, digital solutions, obviously.
0: I was surprised that yeah, you have this cumbersome system uh, to, to, of course, go through security, uh, to to put your bags through x-ray. Uh, so that's sort of one hurdle um, already, which you think, oh, why am I taking a, a train? Okay, fine, I don't have to go to the airport. And then, as you said, trains were absolutely packed. I mean, good, good for them, um, but no luxury of even being in business class and maybe having that seat beside you empty um absolutely not and i guess my question for you is is this the in this world where where data rules is this the direction that we're we're heading in um on on many routes as opposed to a lot of the reasons why we, let's be honest, a lot of the reasons why we do like rail is because there is no security to get onto trains, uh, at least in many places. And also we we like the serendipity of the travel as well. There's you know People always talk about rail and romance, and part of it is you never know who's going to be beside you, or you might have a, a block of four seats. Wow, how exciting is all of that? So does that get lost in all of this? Because I, I don't think we should sort of ignore what are some of the core or romantic reasons that we also like rail.
1: So we shouldn't forget that um, most uh, train operators operate at a loss. And that's one of the big, big problems when you actually want to switch to rail, because the more rail you use, the more money is lost and you have to subsidize it. And, and nobody likes doing that. I think the car is not different, but the calculation is different because we don't think about the taxes we pay and, and the roads that had to be built. They're just there. And we compare the gas price with the all in ticket price of, of a train. I read an interesting as a little bit of a sidetrack, but interesting study. In most countries, when you ask people, what do you spend your money for? Number one is housing, number two is transportation on a car. But yet people think a car is cheaper than a train. But coming back to your subject, <clears throat> so to get the trains more equally used, is a huge lever to make them profitable. Like in Germany, I mentioned that we had 55% utilization in mainline traffic before COVID. And it's it's not a bad number. It's it's the average number in Europe. It means 45% of revenue is lost for an operator and 45% of CO2 savings is lost. You think about what we have to do as a society to be CO2 uh, half of the CO2 emissions in 2030. It's like we're we are turning our national budgets around to achieve this and probably we won't achieve it. And yet we have 45% savings there that, in CO2 that we don't use. So I, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a huge opportunity. And just imagine for one second that rail was profitable. You could have private public partnerships that actually built rail lines like it used to be in 1900 or whenever England was industrialized. And you could have private uh, public partnerships that build actually metro lines all over the place. So, so it would be such a huge difference in, in in the usage of the system. But the other part is, when you're digital, you can choose your operations model. It doesn't mean you have to have okay, security, security, but you you don't have to have a closed system like that. But but what you can do is, you can have a QR code on the back of a seat, for instance, uh, in a train, and when you when you jump in and you take the seat. You have to scan in and then the operator knows how many seats are still available. And by doing that, you would be able to be in second class and come back to your problem or your, your, your wish. You can rebook to first class because you say, oh, first class is still empty and I can rebook on the fly and go in first class, check in again. You could have a obligation to reserve. And I think in Germany, many countries, we really enjoy what you said. You buy a ticket and it's valid for the whole day. And you go there because the train runs every hour. And if you miss one, you take a coffee. Drink a coffee, take next one, but you could, you could allow rebooking until ten minutes before the train leaves. But at least, you have an idea as an operator how many people will be on the train, and you actually you should be able to improve your service. and And the one example I always say is when when you have 45 percent of the seats empty. This means there's a capacity. It should lead to lower pricing. I mean, there's a lot of trains that could be offered to people at lower pricing and would still be beneficial. To the operator as, as additional revenue, on top revenue, and it would be beneficial for CO2. So, uh, I, I think all of you said what you said. It doesn't uh, honestly, it doesn't have to do with digitalization, and but but digitalization to to have the idea of knowing who's on your train and giving them a better service is actually what we, what we are striving for.
0: Mm. Just before we uh, we go, uh, we have to address the issue of, of comfort. Last time we spoke, uh, you said that there was probably going to be many more types of, of, of seating. And we would see yeah, sort of almost a much more hybrid uh, type of carriage. Uh, and, and I guess we, we see part of that happening now. And we should probably also say that uh, it's probably not down to, to Siemens. You might have one part uh, of it, or you, may, you might be one part of the equation. But of course, it always comes down to the client. So if I think of a new Siemens uh, bit of rolling stock that I was on, uh, which will run through the channel tunnel, there's been a total downgrade in the type of seat that, they, that they've that they used. Now, that's the Client who, who ultimately goes and chooses the seat and the the design agency that they work with etc. and it's almost like but everyone we go back to the Shinkans and Everyone has a sort of a fantasy of you know when when you've been on Japan in the green car how fantastic it is, and yet we hear European operators say, well, our trains don't go as as far and so we don't we don't see the need to put in comfortable seating because the journeys are two hours but well that's nonsense because you know the shinkansen goes you you can travel five hours but Mm -hmm. you can also travel 90 minutes um and it's and it's it's super comfortable is that just a lack of vision and imagination uh is it sort of the the calvinists uh, who are maybe running um the the rail networks uh my my, and i get back to my question are we going to be traveling more comfortably or is it going to be a world of slimline hard seats
1: That is a difficult question to answer because, like you say, it is the uh, option of the operator. I can tell you we're selling a lot more locomotives these days because they allow cross-border traffic. And what that means is that a lot of new entries into the transportation market want to operate on a push-pull level with coaches. So the risk from your point of view is that they are rather going to be competing in the lower fare end, trying to measure themselves against buses that are... uh, uh, competition and that they're gonna uh, try to be on the price side of the of the competition they're also mostly interested in big city connections so that tends to go into that direction on the other hand I have four examples for you maybe next time or you probably are knowing you a little bit you, t- you know the, uh, the the business class or first class seats there on the, on the railjet in Austria which is really the opposite end of the spectrum really comfortable. We see a lot of operators asking for wider trains now. Also Deutsche Bahn wants to for wider trains to have more space between the seats because they say the difference between the train and the... And that's actually also the reason why they went for single-deck and, and, and all other modes of transportation is you, you have more space usually in a train, so it should feel spacious and not cramped. And so that's why they don't go double-decker. Brightline, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, um, is, is a project that we are working with the developer together and they want to have very wide trains and they say, the reason why we want to take people to take the train in Los Angeles and go to Las Vegas is because the vacation should start in Los Angeles. So they were seriously thinking about already um, having entertainment on the train as you board the train because of course in the U.S. you have short vacation, everybody has five or 10 days a year, so every hour counts, So, so that's their concept to operate. So there's a lot of different concepts of operations. But in the first category that I mentioned, I share with you your thoughts that maybe it goes a little bit like the airplane industry in, in Europe. You know, you have a lot of low budget uh, competition and then everybody kind of needs to follow that to a certain extent and the seats get uh, harder and harder and uh, the knee space gets smaller and smaller. And um, it's, I think it's upon also us, um, you know, who we buy the tickets to define actually what, uh, what trend in the market will actually be, be successful.
0: today to Michael Pater, CEO of Siemens Mobility. This episode of The Chiefs was produced by Tom Webb, edited by Steph Chungu and recorded by Desiree Bentley. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.